I think that it connects me to that, that youthful feeling to be out in the woods now. Um, it just reminds me of, of how free it was to be a kid out in the woods. I am Annette Sinek Clapsaddle. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and boy, am I excited about this podcast today. Way back in April, I had the opportunity to sit down with friend and occasional co-host, Lily Knapp, who's a reporter with Blue Ridge Public Radio, and we interviewed Annette Sanu-Klapsaddle. Annette first came to my attention when I encountered her book, Even As We Breathe, and I was so excited to learn that she's actually the very first enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians to be published as an author. Um, Her book, on its own is phenomenal, but after being able to sit with her and talk with her about her experiences, growing up in Kuala, leaving, going to the Northeast, and coming back to work with her tribe, it just put everything in an entirely new perspective. If you haven't already, I highly recommend grabbing a copy of Even As We Breathe. It's a remarkable story. The way that Annette crafts her words and the way that she tells the story and depicts the mountains and the people and their relationships with the place just really um, takes it to a whole new level. It's it's unlike anything else I've ever read. It's set in the early 1940s during uh, the U.S. involvement in the war, and it's about a young man who leaves Cherokee to go and work at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville. Um, At that time, the Grove Park Inn housed diplomats, and so it's a really interesting story to look at those relationships but also, um, you know, through his trips back to Cherokee and kind of unraveling some of these more important cultural pieces at a time that isn't widely discussed in history. You know, too often, and this comes up in our conversation with Annette and other conversations I've had with Indigenous peoples, but too often are Indigenous peoples referred to in the past, they're kind of frozen in time, you know, as kind of this historical artifact and piece of history that's that's over. I've heard multiple indigenous people say that in a lot of their conversations with non-indigenous peoples, they just assume that these tribes are dead. <laughs> and it's not very much not true. And it's really great to just see this little piece of history come to light. And certainly, I think this conversation with Annette uh, would enrich any experience of reading indigenous literature. Um, and so I hope you all enjoy this. I can't express how much this impacted me. And I was really thrilled to be able to bring Annette to visit with the Foxfire summer students who write the Foxfire magazine, partly because she's an English teacher, but she's also a writer. And again, just her experience working with the Cherokee and being Cherokee, um, I think really helped put things in a different perspective for our very own students and to see the diversity of their own culture. So I, I won't talk too much since this is a bit longer of a podcast, but I hope you all enjoy it. And if you haven't already, definitely go out there and order a copy of Annette's book. You can get the full transcript of this interview on our website. That's www.foxfire.org. We've also linked to Annette's own website and places where you can order the book. So I grew up in Cherokee, North Carolina, technically in Kuala, North Carolina, Since I'm talking to you guys, I can be more specific than I can other places. And I I live really like, 
I don't know, just down the hill from the house that I, I grew up in. So um, I grew up in Koala, right off the Koala boundary, uh, right outside of Cherokee. And I went to Jackson County Public Schools. After I graduated from high school, um, I went to Yale University for my undergraduate degree in American Studies. And I also got my teaching license in English while I was there and then went on to the College of William and Mary for my master's degree. And when I finished that, I came back home to Cherokee um, and have been here ever since. A lot of people work their whole lives to retire to Western North Carolina, so why don't I just start out? Um, but I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. It's a beautiful place. There's a richness and a complexity that, that doesn't feel boring to me. It doesn't, you know, I feel like there's still so much to explore here, even though I've been here for 40 years. And, you know, it's a place I want my kids to grow up in and be a part of this community. Um, you know, family's important to us as well. I'm fortunate that there are enough opportunities for me here. That wasn't necessarily always true for everyone. So, you know, to be able to work here and have a job um, but also, you know, as a writer and someone who wants to be connected with the rest of the world, because of technology, we can still do that here to, to a large extent. I mean, I would like faster internet, but <laughs> we're doing all right. What was it like growing up here? You know, it was just, I just remember being outside all the time. Um, my parents ran gift shops in Cherokee. And so I would spend the summers in the river behind the gift shop with my brother and cousins and other kids that had parents who worked in that area. Um, I'd be in the woods um, behind our house all the time. You know, it's like, I am so afraid of snakes now, but I must not have been when I was little because we were all over the place. Um, you know, I, I just remember being outside when I was a kid. Do you think those, uh, those years outside in your childhood shaped how you see the world around you and how you interact and observe things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a place that I'm very comfortable in. Um, I have adult friends who didn't grow up like that, and they're very afraid of outside. Um, but it's where I'm, I'm probably less afraid. I'm, you know, I'm more comfortable in the woods. Um, I'm more comfortable in finding answers out in nature. You know, not in some kind of weird magical way, but <laughs> just you know, being able to kind of still my own mind and, and pay attention to what, you know, what's going on in the world around me. Um, and you know, now I mountain bike, so. Um, I think I feel, I think that it connects me to that, that youthful feeling to be out in the woods now. Um, it just reminds me of, of how free it was to be a kid out in the woods. Um, and, you know, it's exciting too. There's a little bit of danger, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I, it's my go-to if I'm stuck. Um, with a decision or something I'm riding, I, you know, to get outside as quickly as possible. Awesome. How long have you been mountain biking? Um, just about four years now. I started mountain biking, um, let's see, I was the executive director at the Cherokee Preservation Foundation, and we had a planning grant come through for Fire Mountain Trail System in Cherokee. 
And um, I was like, I was at this point in my life where um, I just had my youngest son um, and trying to get off the weight and was in this new director position and I just felt really stuck in a lot of ways. I've been a lifelong athlete, but wasn't feeling very athletic at the moment. And um, the plan grant came through. And as I talked to um, the folks involved with the trails, the more and more I talked about the cycling community and what mountain biking was, um, it you know, really interested me. And to know that Cherokee was going to have this world-class trail system in my backyard seemed like a great opportunity to at least give it a try. So um, I rented you know, a bike a couple of times before you make that kind of investment um, and just fell in love with it, absolutely fell in love with it. It's, um, I have, you know, my knees and ankles are shot from years of basketball, so um, cycling's been great for that, and I'm just completely obsessed now. It's not good, probably, <laughs> how much I love it. Can you tell me a little bit about your time at the Cherokee Preservation Foundation? Sure. So I had um, been teaching for a few years at, at Swain County High School when um, I heard that the the executive director was leaving the Preservation Foundation. She had she was the founding director, had been there 10 years. Um, and, you know, it was a great opportunity to uh, work for the Cherokee community in, in a broad way. Like, I, I feel like I've, I've always done that work in a classroom or in the chief's office when I worked there. But um, it, it was a way to connect Western North Carolina at large with um, the Eastern Band and the Preservation Foundation focuses on um, cultural preservation, environmental preservation, and economic development, uh, all areas that you know I'm passionate about. Um, and so it was an opportunity for me to help lead uh, this organization in its next phase. You know, it had gotten rooted in, in Western North Carolina and in the foundation world. Um, and, I, you know, I think they were looking for, well, what is the vision from Cherokee Eastern Band specifically? And um, was able to have that opportunity uh, to do that. Um, but I, ooh, I miss teaching. I miss that, um, that, you know, nitty-gritty ground-level work of teaching yeah. um, and the energy that surrounds that. So, I mean, I will complain about teaching every other day probably, <laughs> but the truth is that, you know, I left a job where I was paid far more and worked far less uh, to go back to teaching. I think you talked a little bit in one of your previous interviews, I was listening to when you were on the State of Things after mm -hmm. this, and just about how important you felt like education is to be a part of, that that was something you really learned in college and mm -hmm. um, wanting to, to give that back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So um, actually, I was just speaking... Um, to an, a Yale alumni group about this topic. When I, when I went to visit Yale after I had been um, accepted, I still, like, I still have a very vivid memory of standing on campus with my mom, and we were talking to the director of the teacher prep program there. And my mom asked him, why in the world would somebody come to Yale to be a teacher, <laughs> right? Um, I think what she meant was, why in the world would somebody pay this tuition? 
<laughs> then become a teacher. Um, but he had the best answer. He said, you know, when you are gifted with a world-class education, the best thing you can do with it is give it back, you know, and, and, and share it with other people. And I really took that to heart. Um, and, you know, I think that's true whether you're talking, you know, an Ivy League education or just like some, re you know, how to make a certain recipe, right? There's no point in it in keeping that to yourself. I mean, that's really a loss. Um, and as and I, you know, the way that knowledge is traditionally passed in, in Cherokee culture is almost a mentorship. Um, it's you know, I know a lot of people want to be able to pick up a book and know how all of our ceremonies work or how medicines work, but that's actually not. How it's done it needs to be um, a mentorship process and so I I value education in that way in that mentorship in that um, you know being with someone and, and teaching someone um, and sharing that knowledge with them individually and you know so I do, try to do that in the classroom but I also think writing is a way to do that um, it's that that storytelling kind of mentorship um, that we can do so and that you know in Cherokee culture um, education has always been incredibly important it's you know it wasn't something that was new to us when Europeans came to <laughs> I think it is but it's not um, so you know and my family's always valued it both sides of my family my mom's side too um, my you know the women on both sides of my family have always been advocates of education. Um, and, and you have great grandmothers who have college degrees and worked outside of the house, and um, it's just kind of in my DNA now. Awesome. You, you've mentioned this a little bit, like talking about opportunity in the region. I mean, I'm, I'm from Franklin, and mm -hmm. so I grew up here, and, and you know, a lot of people leave and, and don't come back, especially um, how do you talk about opportunity in the region especially i feel like you've thought about this a lot from the cherokee preservation foundation mm -hmm. you know economic development perspective of of what it is that people are trying to bring back to the region sure yeah you know it's um you know often we think of you know how many jobs are available um, but I think it's bigger than that. We have more opportunity in terms of what we can create based on the assets that we have without um, you know, sacrificing those assets. So it's always a balance. Um, but you know, we have um, I, one of the most important aspects, in my opinion, for a healthy um, economy is, is a creative community um, a community that values work, um, that has fought for survival, and I'm not just talking to the Cherokee population in Western North Carolina, I'm talking about pretty much everybody. Um, and so you really have the, the baseline for building an economy that matches our value system. And I think if we can do that, we can continue to grow um, with, you know, with new opportunities for whether it be big business or small business. Um, certainly in the immediate, the gaming industry um, that, that came in via the tribe uh, was an economic boost and it changed everything. Um, it, it changed things in ways people may not have expected. I think 
you know, there was a big fear there would be crime and all those things that came in. But what we did was reinvest in our cultural attractions in a more authentic way. Um, we, you know, put more money into environmentally sustainable practices. And so thinking about um, business in a sense that is responsible to the value system of a community is important. And I think we can do that and we're headed in that direction. Um, from the tribe's perspective specifically, I know we're you know, really on the edge of, or precipice is probably a better word, of our outdoor economy and what we can do um, to kind of help lead the charge in that direction, you know, back to those, the Fire Mountain Trail system is, you know, an example of, oh, we can be really successful with something like this. It's not a new building. It's not, you know, it's not gaming. Um, and it, it shows that we can um, partner with other organizations across Western North Carolina who have like-minded values in this area. So, um, I did, you know, I think the future of the economy in Western North Carolina is something that, that we don't know the answer to, but we have to continue to invest in, in creative minds and, um, and utilize what our strengths already are instead of trying to copy what somebody else is doing somewhere else. That doesn't tend to work. <laughs> Do you think that Cherokee is beginning to really develop a successful model for, um, you know, what life on, I mean, obviously Qual is not a reservation, but, you know, on, on um, tribal lands could look like? Yeah, I mean, you, we've had opportunities that other tribes have not had, um, so it's hard to compare, but it is a model. I mean, we, we have taken our, the, resource, the resources we do have available and I feel like maximized them, um, certainly with gaming, but we, you know, we, we have got to diversify or, <laughs> or it's not gonna look so great in a few years, you know, but we have invested in different ways. Um, you know, I think uh, I spent some time writing about the tribe's approach to COVID, for example. Man, that is a model, not just for other tribes, but for the United States of this America. <laughs> you know, like the, the way in which our tribe um, built these teams of healthcare providers and um, you know, the hospital staff, um, community volunteers and um, community programs, community rooted programs, um, and um, government officials. I mean, just it's it doesn't happen other places because um, other places aren't set up like the tribe. So, where you might have a hospital system that is profit oriented, we don't. Um, and so, our hospital has no problem partnering with public health to deliver testing or um, to do contact tracing, those kind of things. And I'll get off on a tangent talking about COVID response because it fascinates me. But, but that's an example really of, you know, where the tribe has stepped up and I think really is a model. A lot of times people do think of our economy as a model and it certainly is um, so far. But, um, but we, you know, we had opportunities because of our location sure. um, that other tribes don't have and I think probably our response to COVID is a better example of how we've used just a different 
worldview mm -hmm. to approach problems. I was going to say, do you see those responses as a reflection of your, you know, cultural traditions? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's about community health. Um, and, you know, profit will never supersede community health. It just can't. Um, so, and, and it's just, it's just, a, you know, it's taking a problem and kind of turning it on its head and looking at a different angle for approaching it um, and not feeling like we're locked into a system that somebody else is doing. Um, and, you know, we, we did things differently than the state told us to do. Um, and that, you know, we exercised our sovereignty in that way and that is always a risk, um, but it, it proved to be the right decision. So. Do you see that your Cherokee students are connecting closely with those traditional values? Has there been success in bringing it back to the classroom? I think, you know, with the age of students that I work with, I'm seeing it a little bit more, um, not in, in huge numbers, but there, there is some interest. And, and more so, it's more just acceptable. Um, you know, it's not, if, if someone has some sort of traditional knowledge or, you know, some, um, you know, artistic talent in a traditional art form. They don't hide it as much. Uh, people appreciate, students appreciate that work more. Um, and it's interesting, it's like a, I think that it's important that it is uh, a movement that is more accepting of everybody trying to learn. You know, like you did, maybe you did not grow up in a household that taught those things. So, you know, there's a process for learning and you make mistakes. This generation, I don't know how large I expand that generation, um, it's just more accepting of us all trying to figure it out um, together and, and, and work to revitalize those um, traditions and learn from each other. Whereas, you know, just a couple of generations older than, than me, um, it's, you know, that is an alternative to a successful life, right? Um, that is, you know, none of that's going to help you um, be financially stable and things like that. So um, it's a different way of looking at it. And then also, you know, you know, I think it, especially if you think of things like language, um, there were there used to be trepidation about trying to learn the language because what if you got it wrong and somebody would be like oh you're not saying that right you know and there's lots of disagreements with how you use the language but I think that's changed and it's just a more relaxed open approach to learning our our culture that I think is really healthy um, and more sustainable. Um, do you think that some of the you know hesitations that were I mean put in place by boarding school and some mm -hmm. of the other strictures are finally starting to ease off then yeah absolutely I mean um of course you know boarding schools <laughs> are gone um but you know offering you know, the switch from boarding schools eliminating native languages to now even our public schools offering uh, native language UNC system accepts those credits as a which is ironic, a foreign language credit, um, whatever that means. Um, you know, so it, yeah, I think that, that that has gone by the wayside. So you, you mentioned a lot of women in your life. Do you have a specific mentor that um, shared Cherokee cultural values mm -hmm. with you? Because 
I know traditionally Cherokee's matrilineal society mm -hmm. was that evident to you mm -hmm. growing up as a child? No, I didn't have that kind of experience. Um, although, like uh, in terms of passing down that kind of traditional cultural knowledge. Um, but I will say, I guess it depends on how you define cultural knowledge because my grandmother, my dad's mother, um, was a councilwoman um, and for over 25 years, very well respected in our community um, as a political leader. Um, but she was not a... Um, well, if you've read the book, she's not Lishi. She's not like this... <laughs> The, you know, a sweeter kind of grandmother figure. She was powerful. Um, and I've learned a lot from that kind of uh, Cherokee woman, which I guess is, you know, in a lot of ways is cultural knowledge, but it's not the language. It's not like basketry or anything. It's just a different kind of aspect to our, our community. So uh, there's a, <laughs> one of my favorite stories about her is that, and I don't know if this is true, but that she was, in Bryson City and standing on one side of the street and another council member, a man, was walking on the other and she uh, just kind of raised her chin in a nod like of, of recognition and he shot his hand up as if he were voting in council because that's what <laughs> he would do normally when she nodded at him. So I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of, that was her, you know, image. But, but, you know, she also used to bake cakes um, for raffles to raise money for families. And, you know, people will always tell me that, you know, she gave away any money she had, you know, to help um, people out. And I always remember her cooking um, and baking. That's, yeah, I can still smell her kitchen. Yeah. She passed away when I was 13, too. You talked a little bit about... Um or we haven't, I know it's on our list, is like talking about um, Appalachian identity as well as Cherokee. And um, rereading this interview, you said something about, as an Appalachian writer, how hard it is to explain what it's like to live here without being a stereotype. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something that I try to do. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really interested in, you know, how you feel yourself in your identity as like an Appalachian Cherokee person and mm -hmm. how you talk about that and obviously you've done a great job of that in your book yeah the, um Silas House and I have talked about this you know we we both agree that we didn't consider ourselves Appalachian until college didn't even think about it um until I was in college um and really you know and I, I guess I more so thought of myself as Cherokee but never that to the extent that I need to define myself as uh, different because I was Cherokee. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, for me, it always goes back, it, it, and it's def by definition, it's about place and how that place um, influences my identity. And so by being both Cherokee and Appalachian, um, there is, you know, something in my identity that um, is that that feels a um, fierce protection of this land. Um, that it's, you know, that it is not um, destroyed for financial gain or you know or anything like that. Now, you know, I've written about um, the similarities between um, the 
the two communities can feel. So, you know, the Eastern Man Cherokee and, for example, um, you know, Swain County when families were removed from the Fontana area. You know, my grandfather's family was removed from Fontana um, for, by the TVA for uh, the dam project. Um, and then, of course, you have the, you know, the road to nowhere promise and all of that, right? Broken promises. There's so many um, similarities. And you see that throughout Appalachia. Sometimes it's with mining companies and, and things like that. So um, I think that anytime you have communities who have laid down lives um, to, to protect land, um, then, you know, that that means we have a common identity um, in that way. I, you know, I think it's about, and maybe it goes back to survival and, you know, feeling a need to connect with a community, um, that you're reliant on that community and you have an obligation to that community at the same time. Um, I don't, there's never been a point in my life where I hadn't felt like I had some kind of obligation to my community. When I ask why you go back, why do you come home from Yale? I just can't imagine cutting ties. You know, like okay, I've got my, I got my degree. Forget all those people that helped me get to this point. You know, and then I'm just gonna go off. Um, I don't know where. I'll go to New York or something. I don't know, and do my thing. I just like I cannot even fathom that idea of of cutting myself off from the people who helped me get to where I where I am, um, but that's not to say like, it's not like this stagnant thing, right? Um, and I've said this multiple times, for a culture by definition to exist, it has to grow and it has to change in some ways, but it, it, it has to do that based on its core values. So it's not, um, it's not adapting to another culture necessarily, but we can't stay the same or we die. And uh, I think that's what, what the biggest thing I try to communicate to other people about Appalachia or about um, our Native community is that it is, is vibrant and changing and complex and it's not going to be stuck in one time period. And I have to say this from like an outsider's perspective, <laughs> that, you know, I guess maybe since the Midwest is newer and it's more transient and mm. it's more mixed, like... You know, until I came here, I had no sense of what an identity like this would look like. Uh -huh. It's just, I'm just so drawn to everybody and the way they speak about the land. Um, you know, I think you put it really beautifully in your book, the, the spirit of the land. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's something that, that I just hear from a lot. <laughs> and I mean, um, but it's, and it's so much more than, it, I mean, the spirit is also there, but I mean... The, most of the book is about the literal bones of mm -hmm. your ancestors right. that are in the ground. How do you, how do you think about that, and how do you explain that jump from this like spiritual connected mm -hmm. connection to the land that many people feel to this like literal connection? Right. Yeah. Um, I may answer this in a roundabout way, but I always think about uh, when I was working in Chief Hicks's office. Uh, we had a politician from a neighboring community come through the office. But the conversation, I'm gonna code this a little bit, was around some development on some historically Cherokee land. And that development for that neighboring community 
would require potentially digging up Cherokee graves. The politician did not quite understand the magnitude of that, right? It was, um, well, well, we'll put them somewhere else, right? And the way that Chief Hicks spelled it out for him, I will never forget. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I want you to imagine that I go to the graveyard and I dig up your grandmother. How do you feel about that, right? And it, it, until someone puts it in those terms, native ancestry, native you know, bones are, are dehumanized for the rest of the world. They're in, in museums, right? They're uh, artifacts, they're not, they're not human remains. And, and so that, you know, that was something I wanted to comment on. I mean, we are literally in this earth. Um, and we would, ne you know, you would never dig up somebody's grandmother, you know, from a graveyard without a huge problem, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think about it um, a lot of times in that way. Um, and, and again, it just goes back to that, that you know, centuries of, of protecting this land um, and, you know, putting as much into this land, uh, literally and figuratively as, or actually more than, than we seek to take from it. Um, and I, you know, to me, that's just, a, that should be a human quality. It shouldn't be a native quality. It shouldn't be an Appalachian quality. Um, but you know, maybe just because of our experiences here, it, it seems that sometimes people don't understand that as much. From an indigenous perspective, I mean, this is something I've seen throughout my work in archaeology, but how do you take the people who see, you know, who like to go arrowhead hunting? I was, I was right in my head when you find, said that, yeah. You know, people who love to go, you know, plow fields and pick up pottery. How do you take people like that who, who have a genuine interest in something, but turn that conversation around so that they understand what those items mm -hmm. and even the bones actually are and what they mean and yeah. the weight they carry. I think that's that's a really hard thing to do. I struggle with that all the time. Um, you know, the worst experiences I have are when um, I meet someone new in whatever venue and we're having a great conversation. I'm like, oh, I like this person. This is a good human being. And then they say something. <laughs> Like, you know that I'm just like, oh, you have no idea, right? And then, you, you know, I'm put in a position of, do I educate them? Um, am I going to offend them? Which I probably will. You know, and it's just like this delicate, weird um, situation to be in. And it is... You know, one of our core values is sense of humor. So sometimes, you know, it is my go-to, but that doesn't, like for some people, if you use sense of humor, they don't get it. You're just going to have to be um, blunt with them. Um, but it, it's a real challenge because those, like you mentioned, those people don't have bad intentions, you know, and they want to connect in some way to something that is older than, the, than what they know. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of people who've talked about this topic of like people who want to claim native ancestry, for example, and like why? Like what is they don't want to claim other ancestry, 
you know, um, and it's sometimes not just a money issue for them because sometimes it is, um, but it's just this weird, um, a weird desire to connect to the stereotypes of Native culture. Um, you know, I think about someone searching for arrowheads, for example. Is somebody going to be searching for my son's Nerf gun bullets in, you know, a few hundred years? Like, I mean, it's, I got strange to me that you're, <laughs> you know, that you're doing that. Or pottery shards. I break bowls all the time at my house. Those are native pottery now because they belong <laughs> to me. I can send them to you for, you know, for a fair price. Um, it's just. You know, it's strange when you look at the reality of what people are doing and how they want to connect. I do teach some classes on um, like writing from Native perspectives because I just got really tired of reading a lot of junk um, with stereotypes. But um, it's, I don't know. Um, I don't have a good answer for that, obviously. I've just kind of talked around it, but it's, um, I just try to connect it to the, to their own reality, right? So, um, you know, why are you looking for arrowheads? You know, what you know, what do you want to get out of that? Um, I don't, you know, I don't care if people look for arrowheads. It, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of arrowheads out there, so. Um, but that doesn't make you native if you find them, you know. And I think that sometimes people find that connection in weird ways. I, you know, I think part, I'll speak for native culture, that I think part of the issue with native culture is that in the larger United States narrative, well, this just came up with CNN, right? Um, that native, native peoples are dead for most, for most Americans. You know, we are a dead culture, uh, a conquered culture. Um, and so people feel, it's like this like subconscious thought that we're dead, right? So that if someone were to meet a Native person, uh, they feel like they get a history lesson. It's like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's what it's all about. Oh, my God, I'm excited about this. No, I see where you're going because I think some of it is about uh, this is like the tour, the like extractive tourist yeah, aspect of absolutely. it. Absolutely. Being able to go and buy your fake arrowhead at a gift yeah. shop or I have my tour guide right for the day and I am now connected um when it stay but it it always it seems like those types of people always want to go back to our past right they always want to talk about um the past or trauma that's the other thing I mean um <laughs> I met a lady when I was mountain biking um, and we were on the Fire Mountain Trails, and then we were up at the top, and we were just talking. Once again, one of these examples, I was like, oh, she, she's pretty cool. Having a good conversation. Then she finds out I'm Cherokee, and she said something like, oh, how do they treat you? <laughs> so I was like, who? I don't know who you're talking Like, who? How does who treat me, you know? Um, but... You know, they wanted that painful, or she wanted that painful narrative, I guess. Of, I don't know if she meant the government or my tribe, or like, I don't know who's who treats me, but I was like, I gotta go. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it is an awkward situation sometimes to have conversations um, with people 
because they they want you to stay in that time frame they're used to hearing about native people and they're not used to a contemporary um, time period so I do want to talk more about tourism and like I feel like that was such an, a part of the book yeah. for, that was for me about tourism uh-huh. and I was, you wove all these really important Appalachian Western North Carolina things in without like explicitly being like right. this is about tourism yeah now. yeah <laughs> such a great time period it, yeah it really I mean, was a great time really period pivotal yeah for change mm-hmm yeah, um, I've always been, well, so, you know, my family's background is really important in that. Um, so my grandfather was Osley Sanuk, and he opened Chief Sanuk's Trading Post um, in Cherokee. He's a two-term chief professional wrestler. He an, was an interesting dude. And actually, my first manuscript was like a fictionalized version of his life because he's so interesting. But uh, anyway, so he opened up... Um, this this trading post that kind of has now evolved to what's Sanuk Village in Cherokee, um, and so I have all. And then on my mom's side, uh, my grandfather, her dad, owned Myers Court, which was a um, a motel in downtown Bryson City. She grew up, you know. Uh, I always just picture her sitting in the the lobby of the motel in downtown Bryson City. Like she was a city girl, you know. Like, um, so both sides of my parents' family was you know heavily invested in tourism, um, and that's all I knew growing up was that you know um, that that our family um, ran those businesses. So. Um, that's always been interested, interesting to me, and then also, you know, coupled with how you represent accurately um, and authentically, you know, you, we've had to make a living, so you sell what sells, which are um, headdresses and things like that, um, but now we have an opportunity to change that, that narrative. Um, I have my, one of my best friends in college um, was, is... Uh, Lakota from Rosebud, South Dakota, and he he used to always joke. He's like, "You owe me money because you are selling our culture," <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, you're probably right." Um, <laughs> so you know, and then my uh, my master's thesis actually was on that topic of you know tourism in Cherokee, but. Um, you know, it, it was for survival. I mean, and Appalachia was like this too, right? You know, the, the products that were sold, the imagery that was sold is still sold to a certain extent um, for economic survival. And you have to do that. And then how do you, you move away from that? And I've just like, I've been really proud of my dad who's 70 now and, um, and how he'll, he transitions away from that. Like he can be a pretty stubborn guy, but um, he at least cares enough um, and sees enough to be able to transition from that Um, and our you know tribal government in general does that as well so it's how do you kind of sustain this economy that is built on the tourists wanting a certain thing um, but also kind of like transition it into more authentic representation what do you feel like are some examples of that that have changed Um, so you know, we used to, 
have these powwow style dancers and chiefing um, in downtown Cherokee a lot more. And they, they do little things like rebuild the structures for them so you don't see those teepees anymore. Um, and then bolster the Cherokee Friends program and Anagadua Warrior um, program through the museum so that we're now sending out authentic representation of um, you know what our dances were like, um, what storytelling's like, how we actually dressed. Um, so it's just providing that alternative image because you you know I mean there's still free enterprise if somebody wants to go dance on the side of the road and take tips they can do it um, but we have to actively provide that other narrative so that people can at least have a choice of you know what they want to believe and, and invest in literally invest in for experiences um, so you know and the the preservation foundation is always investing in um, those those cultural programs and and uh um, organizations. Um, there are more um, classes offered in traditional arts, especially through the museum, um, and getting away from the, the cheap things. Yeah. Driving through Cherokee, I have always noticed that there's still a lot of like vintage signs mm -hmm. in that period as well. How do you feel about um, the preservation of some of that type of imagery? Right. Do you think it's important to the story of Cherokee? Right. Yeah, I mean, a part of our story is is, is chiefing, right? It are these TVs. Um, you know, I do think it's important um, as long as, like I said, you know, we're, we're providing that alternative narrative that our, the new buildings going in are not you know, uh, false imagery. Um, you know, I wish, I have always wished Cherokee would really think about what collectively, um, what we want our, especially like downtown image to be, and we just can't get there. I cannot tell you how many planning meetings I've been in, how many plans I've seen and how many discussions years and years and years and we just cannot get there um and I don't know why I, I don't know why so I don't you know that didn't quite answer your question but yeah like I love the vintage signs but how do we portray them as vintage as opposed to our present existence <laughs> like we're still stuck sorry um you know I don't want that to be what we're sending to people but um, you know, you look at places like Bryson City and Silva and um, that you can tell there is that history there and that appreciation for the vintage or the Art Deco in Asheville, for example. Um, but there's more to it, you know. It's continuing to change and grow. Um, what do you, what do you think's changed and enabled uh, Cherokee to make this shift in their culture or cultural presentation? Mm -hmm. I, I mean... I hate to say it, but money. I mean, to have the, the economic resources that gaming has provided is the only way that we've been able to invest in you know, our language programs and um, our cultural district. And I, it really, you know, money doesn't solve everything, but it sure <laughs> has helped in that avenue. You know, we, we can move from a survival model, right, um, to, to investing in those things that are of other values to us. Um, 
So, I, yeah, I think that's been hugely important. And, you know, and there's things that don't seem directly related but um, are related. Things like taking over the school from the BIA um, or even the hospital so that we can approach healthcare from a more culturally um, authentic standpoint than we have in the past. So, um, and that only came about because we can financially do it. What do you think the rest of the country or even the world could learn from indigenous perspectives and experiences? I think um, they can learn a means of getting out of silos and um, and appreciating that every part of a community, every person in a community has something to contribute to the whole um, and that you know, sometimes outside of indigenous communities, we think that only certain people have the answers or only certain people can contribute to solutions. Um, and what, what you've seen from indigenous knowledge and how it's been implemented even recently um, is that uh, the community is stronger if everyone is involved, if everyone um, has a role to play in solutions to problems and also um, the direction forward for a community. What other writers have inspired you and who should we read if we want to learn more about Indigenous oh, perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I often get this question um, about, I'll talk about other writers in a second, but specifically about um, Indigenous writers. I always get the question about, like, what other Cherokee writers? Well, sometimes I get Eastern Band and I'm like, that's tough. Um, so, you know, there are other Eastern Band writers who um, have written um, essays and poetry and things like that um, to some extent. But, mo you know, there are some other Cherokee writers in general that um, Kelly Jo Ford just had a book come out about the same time as mine. Um, and she's Cherokee Nation. Um, Crooked Hallelujah is the name of her book. I really, Kelly Jo is great. Um, if you like my book, I think that you would like, it's like Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, different, I mean, obviously a different story, but um, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, I like her writing. Robert Conley um, is another Cherokee author. Short stories, novels. Um, he also did some nonfiction work. Um, but I read uh, Louise Erdrich is like my hero in terms of indigenous lit. I'm really picky when it comes to native literature. Um, so I would, those are the ones I want to stick with right now. I won't go into the other ones. There, there are a lot that are getting a lot of attention. There are a lot of male native writers that are getting a lot of attention. But, you know, I have been, I, I've been really fortunate that I've had writers in my life um, for a long time. We, um, our family was uh, really good friends with Billy Letts, who is from Oklahoma, but has family here um, in this area. She's not native, but um, she wrote Where the Heart Is. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so she was like one of those kind of early, the earliest example of, oh, this is a famous writer that I know and I can have a conversation with her. And she read uh, some like early work of mine in ripped it to shreds in the nicest possible way and I just like sobbed and then like 
that I think that may be a moment where I was like, I'm gonna be a writer because I gotta survive this, right? You know, and it was just like this challenge of she was right, like I knew she was right. Um, so, um, so she was one of the earliest people, but I've been fortunate enough to have mentors like Charles Frazier, who I met when he was working on 13 Moons and was in Cherokee. Uh, he and his wife have been invaluable. Um, and then the, you know, the network of writers in North Carolina and in Appalachian in general is just incredible because not only are they prolific, but they're just good people. Did you have any say in your cover art? I, I love the cover uh, Thank art. you. No, it's, um, so, no, I, I was in Kentucky at Berea um, for an event, and so I was able to meet with one of the editors, I think it's the editor, um, at Kentucky, kind of talk about the project, and he asked um, if I had any thought, like, you know, what do you think about cover? And I said, I know enough to know that I cannot dream up a cover in my head. Like, I don't, I, I could not communicate that. And I said, but I'll tell you what I don't want. I do not want any stereotypical native imagery. And we were on the same page from the beginning about that. That wasn't a hard sell. Um, and then I think I may have, I don't know what he thought about me saying this, but I said, I do not want mountains on the cover because everybody has mountains on the cover. And, you know, he was perfectly fine with that. Um, oh, I will say a funny story. That, so we were having this conversation at this cafe about the cover. And before I get to the mountains thing, I'm talking about these stereotypical images, you know, like kind of like headdresses or whatever on there. And uh, I look on the floor, no lie, I look on the floor of the cafe, and there's a huge feather. And I collect feathers. I do consider them a sign in some way, but this is not an Indian thing. This is like, I just collect feathers. So I'm sitting there and I'm just like, giving him my spiel about no stereotypical things. And I'm just looking at the feather and I'm looking at him and I was like, listen, there's a feather on the ground and I'm gonna pick it up, but I don't want you to get the wrong idea about me picking this feather up. So, <laughs> Luckily, he has a sense of humor. Um, I did pick up the feather. Um, and then I told him I didn't want mountains. And so I had no idea what the cover was going to look like. And I was so nervous. Um, and so I get it um, in a PDF. You know, it's the first time I see it. And I remember pulling it up because I, I don't know. I had no idea what it was going to look like. I just stared at it forever. You know, you would think that you would either be like, oh, I hate it, or oh, I love it. I was just like, huh. You know, like, I had no idea what I really thought about it. Um, but then I read the um, explanation from the cover designer, and it was like poetry. Like, this, this guy, like, thought about every aspect, which I guess they do. That's their job. I just didn't know that they did that, right? So everything from the color being that kind of, uh, both military, but like almost like a CCC camp, you know? Um, and then specifically, because I said they couldn't put mountains on it, they played around with that a little bit. Those trees mimic mountain ranges, right? So that you still are connected that way. I was like, that was tricky. Um, and then, 
The way that the words are going into the trees indicate the mystery that is in uh, the book. Um, and I just I like the clean, you know, clean feel of it. So um, I have, yeah, I've really come to love it for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to ask anything else because I know about time, but you said the word mystery, and so now I'm going to. <laughs> um, I was really, I have, tr well, yeah, I have trouble, like, thinking about and describing to people kind of the, like, mysterious, mystic aspect of the mountains, mm -hmm. and I was really interested in how you use the monkey to kind of do that for you mm -hmm. in this book and I would just love for you to talk about it because I feel like I want to understand it more and mm -hmm. it's such an interest and it is one of those things that is kind of a stereotypical thing where people are like "Ooh, the mountains are so mysterious mm -hmm. but I'm like it's not in a scary way right that's that's you putting that on this. right yeah and and this then the monkey is so much more like magical thinking than anything else yeah I'm so glad you brought that up yeah yeah so, you know, one of the thing, one of the reasons why our mountains are um, mysterious or magical is because of the biodiversity here. So, right, it's scientific why we are magical. Um, and so that's kind of what I was doing with the monkey as well. Um, and the monkey, the monkey plays a lot of roles. You know, I, sometimes people don't appreciate how important Edgar is to me, but... Um, <laughs> so rude. Um, but... So, um, and you, you've probably heard me talk about this. Um, one of the stereotypes that, I've, that I wanted to push back against was um, of Native people being magic, right? So I take it up to a line a lot of times um, of, you know, there's the bear scenes and things like that. But again, it, it is just understanding your environment and what all this environment has to offer and um, you know, anybody who um, is rooted in place and protects place um, has a connection with place. So, um, so Edgar is playing, so, okay, so the bears in the book um, speak to the fact that there used to be a bear clan and the bears are the most closely related to humans for the Cherokee. You know, they stand on two legs, there's just a lot of similarities and in our stories talk about that as well. And so there are certain um, rituals associated with bear hunting, for example. Um, but that's not that different from, you know, evolutionary science and humans, you know, acknowledging our close relationship to primates. Um, and so I wanted, like, the monkey, <laughs> I didn't just make up a monkey. I mean, uh, the, you know, Gary Carden tells this story, um, I just, we were on a Zoom together the other day and Gary was reminding me of the whole story because I couldn't remember everything. But um, there was a monkey, like somebody had a monkey and they were in the woods. So I didn't make that up completely, but it made so much sense to, to bring attention to, um, you know, this, this animal that Western culture has no, um, no problem acknowledging its nearness to humans but then all of a sudden it's magic that we we acknowledge our nearness to to bears in Cherokee culture so I wanted to play those two things off um but also that that it is you know um 
well, it's silly there's a, there's a monkey, right? You know, and that's, that's part of like this area that there are all these kind of weird, quirky things. But I mean, there's stories behind why they're there, um, but it's part of what makes it magical, you know, that, that we have all of these, the stories too, right? Like a, the monkey doesn't still exist but that story lingers and that makes these, these mountains magical, even if the monkey's no longer alive. Um, and then of course, you know, Edgar, you know, was, was saved by Zadzi who tells the story of the stockades and Cherokee people being captured and what it's like to be in prison. So there's that whole thing of imprisonment. Um, and then finally just the bone and whose bone is, is that and um, you know it's about the size of Edgar's bone. So there's that. <laughs> I don't think we can follow up that with that follow that with anything. I'm gonna have to <laughs> go get perfect. my copy back from my mom and reread it. I, like, and <laughs> I have to read this all over again. <laughs> um, but I'm excited. Well, thank you so much for joining us and a special thank you to Annette for taking the time to sit with us and share our experiences with us. And a special thank you to Lily for joining me on this interview. We had a, a great time getting to speak with Annette and <laughs> had a few laughs along the way. And as you can tell by the end of the podcast, we both were just like enraptured um, and certainly had to go home and reread the book immediately. Again, you can find Annette's book pretty much at any major bookseller, um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, but I highly recommend that you check with your local independent bookstore first, support your local businesses. Um, they probably can order it, and it is, again, called Even As We Breathe. Um, if you visit Annette's website, she's got some other smaller publications that she's done online. Um, I recommend reading some of those as well. If you like this podcast, make sure to leave us a review, give us a rating, share with a friend. It helps bring new listeners our way, and we are so grateful for it. Visit our website, www.foxfire.org, to check out our other podcasts and take a look at some of the new merch we got for this fall season. If you're in the area, make sure to stop by the museum. It's going to be just a gorgeous fall, and there's nothing like the autumn colors that light up the mountain. And join us next month for another podcast. Take care. We'll talk to y'all later. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>